Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here. People ask me all the time, like, why do you live in such a cold place? And I'm like, do you get a pick? I mean, God says go, and people need Jesus that, that are cold. People that are cold need Jesus too, so someone has to do it. But um, Debbie was quite cold there, I think. Probably the coldest place you've ever been? Of course, yeah. Well, I grew up in Alaska, and I had to go to school till it was minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Collective, oh my gosh, would be appropriate right now. You don't even know how, you don't even know how cold that is, do you? Because you don't get Fahrenheit. Whatever. Let's talk about the Bible. I am excited to talk tonight about this because I really think that if you desire as a church to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there are certain earmarks, there are certain things that are going to happen in and through the life of a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so many times we can look at the book of Acts and we can see what a Holy Spirit-filled people of God, Jesus' followers, did. And we can see what they look like. And so I want to talk to you tonight about just how we can be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we never quit bringing good news. You know, we sang some songs tonight about shouting it out from the mountaintop. And I want to look at Acts 16 about how the gospel is for different kinds of people. Because Luke just very carefully selects to teach us something about how the gospel is for everyone. But there are different ways that people actually hear or need to hear the gospel to become a follower of Jesus. So the gospel message itself is the same. It's always truth. It's solid. It's never changing. It's the same truth for generations and generations. But the Holy Spirit helps us know, based on who we're talking to, the way that we're going to bring it, how we're going to contextualize it, which can vary. And so there's three people in this passage today that we're going to look at that are very different, and the gospel comes to them each in very different ways. So the first one that we're going to look at out of Acts 16 is Lydia. And this is uh, verse 11. I'm going to just start reading. Lydia talks to us or she speaks to us about how the gospel is for people who are quite religious. All right? She represents that person. So from Troas, we put out to sea and we sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she... And the members of her household were baptized. Uh, She invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia was this businesswoman. We know that she was dealing in purple cloth, which was uh, extremely expensive, which meant that she was working at the top end of the market. And she owned her own home. She was probably like the CEO of her own company. She's gifted. She's thought very highly of. She's pretty successful. She's also a Gentile, and she'd come to recognize that there's just something different about Judaism. These Jews are alive, and they have something that that I don't see in pagan people or in pagan culture. She was pretty religious, or you might say she was spiritual. She had this kind of earning for, uh, yearning for more spirituality, and so she wants to talk about this 
of, of this, she's searching the Hebrew scriptures. She, she knows a lot of things about the Old Testament, but she doesn't know about Jesus. And so she starts to talk to Paul a little bit about, you know, what she does know that she's read from the Hebrew scriptures. And she wants to talk about it. She wants this, you know, very relational kind of rational discussion to happen. That was kind of her way of coming to terms with what God's plan was for her life. It was a very rational conversation. And the word here in translation for Paul's message means discussion. When it says Paul's message, it's a discussion. It's a discourse that he had with her. And when it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond, the word respond means she was attracted. So she was really attracted to what Paul was talking about because it was rational. It was this discussion. It made sense to her. And she would have been talking about these things with Paul, and then he would have, through the Holy Spirit, being full of the Holy Spirit, he would have had some discernment. And the Lord would have started to talk to him about how to connect with this woman. Have you ever had a conversation with someone and it kind of turned spiritual? This happened to me actually with my Uber driver yesterday. Uh, what are you doing here? Why are you in, in this country? And so I was telling him about, you know, what I do. And then before I know it, we're talking about God. And he wants to know, you know, what I believe. And, uh, and so I just went on to just chat with him for quite a while. But that happens, doesn't it, sometimes? And as you're in those conversations, the discernment, of the, the gift of discernment, Holy Spirit gets on that, and then he kind of just guides us, and he, he leads us, and that's what happened to Paul in this situation, and he must have said, you know, well, let me give you the key. Let me help you make sense of it all, Lydia, because she's talking a lot about the Old Testament, a lot of religious stuff, and then Paul introduces her to Jesus, and he's, you know, telling her about how Jesus died on the cross. And it wasn't even that long ago. And he's telling her that Jesus is the only human being who ever lived this absolutely perfect, righteous life and loved God with all of his heart and his soul and his strength and his mind. And then Paul would probably go on and he would tell her that Jesus was the Lamb of God and that he was the ultimate sacrifice and how he, how he took the curse that our lives deserve. And so when we believe in him, the curse of sin is lifted and it's transferred to Jesus. And then the blessing of Jesus is transferred to us. And when Lydia listened to this, this was the gospel. And when, when Lydia heard this good news, it just was beautiful. It's like it bloomed, it blossomed for her, and it, it really made sense. And I think one of the things that Paul is really wanting her to understand is there's a difference between being religious and having a relationship with Jesus. And even the religious people still need the gospel. They still need Jesus. Uh, and so uh, Paul is just introducing her to relationship to Jesus. You know, one of the differences between religion and relationship is religion says, if I really obey the law, then uh, God's probably going to come and bless me. And God is useful. I obey because he's useful to me. And if I obey, then God will give me things. He'll bless me. He'll answer my prayers. He'll give me good health. He'll take me to heaven. I'll get a ticket out of hell. So I, I'm going to obey God because it's useful. But in contrast, Christians and true Christianity and followers of Jesus obey God because he's beautiful. Not, not because he's useful. We're obeying him as this act of worship. We're praising him because he is worthy of it. 
He is beautiful. And it's not so that we can get something out of it. You don't obey him to get things because in Christ you already have everything. Right? And so we're just, we're just worshiping him. And so Lydia had this God who was useful. But now after her experience, that day she realizes God is beautiful. And look what he has done in this sending his son Jesus who was sacrificed on the cross. And I just want to ask you today, you know, if, if we're honest, if we think about it, are there places in our life where maybe we're trying to obey God because he's useful to us? Because we really do expect something from him. You know, I was thinking about this one time um, in my own life, and my mom had a pretty severe um, uh, physical thing. She had trigeminal neuralgia. She couldn't talk or eat or move her mouth without shooting this terrible pain. She was on morphine and in the hospital for days. And she had just, you know, driven from Alaska to visit me in Minnesota and barely made it there. And we had to go right to the hospital and actually was, uh, you know, there for a special occasion for my ordination. And it was a very important time in the life of our family. And uh, it was really a special, special event. And so here she is laying in the hospital and probably not even going to be able to come if there's not some kind of, you know, healing or intervention. The doctors don't know exactly what to do, so they just keep her on morphine. And, you know, she kept waking up and saying, am I dying, Brenda? Am I dying? And I would say, no, mom, you're not dying. And then she would just go into kind of a morphine coma again. And I brought everybody that I know that can pray for healing from the vineyard. People that, you know, uh, have seen a lot of healing. And we prayed and prayed and prayed over my mom and she never got healed. And I remember driving home from the hospital one day and, you know, I was just frustrated And I was kind of like having it out with God. And I was like, God, I don't understand why you don't heal my mom. This doesn't make sense. She's such a humble follower of Jesus. She doesn't deserve to be there in this kind of pain. And you know this is an important, you know, event in the life of our family. And what if my mother can't even come? And, uh, you know, God says, Brenda, will you worship me? Yeah, check. Got it. I'm on it now. I want you to get my point, God, so let's go back to what I was talking about, you know, and I raise my voice a little bit, and I start arguing with him again, and then he interrupts me a little bit louder and says, Brenda, will you worship me? I said I would already. Okay, can we just talk about my mom? I want to know why you're not healing her and blah, 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 and he says, Brenda, will you worship me? And the Holy Spirit fell on me, and I started to weep. I had to pull over the car because I couldn't even see to drive. And I knew what he was asking then. What he was asking is, will you worship me if you don't get what you want? Will you worship me if you never see another healing? Or if I don't answer that prayer, will you still worship me? Because I'm worthy of it. Even if none of your circumstances or hopes or dreams work out on this earth, am I still worthy of your worship? And it crushed me. And I said, yes, Lord, I will worship you. Even if I never see another healing, even if I never see anything happen here on earth, I will worship you. And he continues to bring me back to that point over and over again and remind me of that conversation as I kind of navigate life. Let's look at the next story. The next person in this passage is the slave girl. 
And the slave girl represents the gospel for the oppressed. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money by her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God. And you, who are you tell, who are telling you the way to be saved? And she kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. You kind of have to ask yourself, you know, why, why is Paul so annoyed about this girl who has this demonic influence? Well, she's distracting, and she's loud, and she's abrasive, and she stayed around for days. And finally, Paul just gets fed up with her because this demon that's controlling her has this agenda of its own. And, you know, so the Spirit of God in Paul has this clash uh, with the spirit of the devil in her. And so Paul knew that she's getting in the way of what God wants, that, you know, this, this demonic influence is really making it difficult for people to see and hear what God wants them to see and hear. So just being around, causing havoc, both in the natural realm and in the spirit realm. Let's read on. When our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. There's a lot happening here because this slave girl is the opposite of Lydia in so many ways. She's, first of all, she's economically the opposite because she's the poorest of the poor. And being a slave meant that she was completely powerless. She was definitely exploited and she was oppressed by demonic influence. She was afflicted and troubled. So there's this clash kind of going on, this clash of the kingdoms over her life. And she's filled with all kinds of spiritual turmoil. You might liken her or think of her kind of as a maybe a teenage drug addicted young girl on the streets who's been uh, turned into an object for money. So how does the gospel come into her life? Well, it's not going to be through a, a rational discussion and reasoning. I mean, that's not going to work for her. But Paul discerns what's going on in the spirit realm. He, he knows what the Lord wants. And so, you know, he just has this supernatural power encounter in that moment, and she is set free. She had demonic masters, she had human masters, and she's emotionally and spiritually in bondage to demons, but she's also socially and physically in bondage to her human masters. She's really exploited, um, you know, socially, and she's being used by her owners. So as a slave girl, uh, you know, she's made to, she's being used to make money for her masters. And they see this happen, and of course they feel really threatened because they're not going to be able to keep exploiting her brokenness for their own uh, gain anymore. And so they just get furious, and their evil intentions are revealed in the way that they react. You know, I, I think that perhaps people, there's more of us, I think, it's, this is, it's hard to say because people in the church don't want to hear it, but you probably brought your demons here tonight with you. Um, you know, I think there's probably more demonic influence in our lives as believers than we want to even acknowledge, than we're willing to admit. 
And, you know, I think that in a very naturally supernatural way, every time we pray for each other, when you hear someone that you know and love say that they're hearing this and you know it's a lie, it's not from the Father, heart of God, just breaking the power of that lie off of them and pointing them to Jesus and speaking the truth in love is pushing back the enemy. That's naturally supernatural deliverance. You're, you're, you're doing spiritual warfare when you do that, when you speak truth and, and into dark places. Uh, and so I think that we're, we're, we live in a culture where there's so much oppression by the enemy. Uh, a lot of it comes to us through lies. And sometimes there's just so much turmoil that we don't have peace. And maybe some of you struggle with that. Maybe you have this spiritual turmoil. You hear lies. You know it's not what the Bible says, but you're kind of getting trapped by those lies, and they afflict you and affect you. And we can pray for that. We can stand shoulder to shoulder. It's, it's, It's Christianity 101 to not live under the negative effects of the oppression that the enemy has thrown down to try to sabotage our relationship with God and with each other. And so we, we pray about that and we ask the Lord to come with the power of the Holy Spirit and set us free. Let's look at the next story, okay? Starting with verse 22. This guy shows up and he is the jailer. And the jailer represents the gospel for the indifferent. He's, he's a, a different character. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's change just came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouts out, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The, the, the story here is that it's, it, the, it's not the jailer's job one bit to even care about the, the prisoner's comfort. His main job is make sure they don't get out, make sure they don't escape. Um, He's almost certainly a former Roman soldier, and he's a pretty rough guy. He's well-suited to guard prisoners. Um, And so they arrive in his prison. They're all beat up. They're bloody. They're kind of oozing, dripping with blood from their wounds. They've been, like, beaten within an inch of their life. And he puts them in stocks. He shows no concern for them. He's pretty callous. And he's a totally different character than Lydia and the slave girl. For this tough guy, it it kind of takes this dramatic, uh, natural event, like an earthquake that literally, you know, confronts him with death to make him start thinking about his salvation. And so of all the stories, of the three stories here, he's the one guy that he's just, he's not looking for anything at all. He, not in the slightest, he has no spiritual interest at all. He, you know, is the guy that lives and works in, in middle class, you know, neighborhood, and, and he's a hard worker, but he's just doing fine. He is not looking for something to, you know, spiritual to improve his life. He's very indifferent. So, you know, Paul brings the gospel to Lydia through a discussion, 
He brings the gospel to the slave girl through supernatural authority over demons. Two totally different, you know, transactions that happen in the spirit realm. Uh, but that's not going to work for this guy. That's not what's going to work. The best thing that's going to work, the way that, to get this guy's attention, is to show him how the gospel changes us. And, the, you know, it, it's like it will shock him. It will shock him and it will get his attention because he's just spiritually indifferent. And so here's what happened. Look at verse 29. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized the jailer brought them into his house and he set a meal before them and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Here's what's fascinating. He witnesses two things, two things that he's never seen before in his life and they completely just blow his mind. And the first thing is their attitude towards suffering because, you know, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God and you know, he just can't believe that they are worshiping God who is foreign to him, I'm sure, in the middle of their suffering. In other words, they, you know, had this kind of joy that's like rooted in the so deeply that when you take away their comfort, you take away their money, you take away, uh, you know, their freedom, and you might even take away their life, but they still worshiped God. And in the jailer's eyes, that is just not normal. He's like, that is weird. Who does that? And so it really gets his attention. And in that day and time, the law was that if you're a prisoner, if you're a prison guard, and you lose your prisoner, your prisoner escapes, you are executed. It's kind of like, you know, game over. And so he thinks they're gone, of course, because why, why wouldn't they be gone? And the doors are all open, the chains are all off. He's a soldier, and what matters to him the most is honor. And he thinks his prisoners have all escaped, so he's just going to fall on his sword, and he's going to be executed anyway, so this is his way of avoiding humiliation. And uh, the second thing that the jailer had never seen before was how they repaid his evil with God's goodness. Because he really mistreated them. And they did the opposite of what he thought he deserved. They didn't get revengeful. They didn't, you know, run out the doors so that he would be executed. It's almost like they knew that God had something in mind and that they needed to cooperate with. Because they submitted to that stuff so that God could get what God wants. And they repaid God's goodness with evil. I mean, you know what I mean. Switch those two things around. They repaid the evil with God's goodness. So the jailer is shocked. Like, he's, he has never seen anything like that. But, you know, remember, they had seen Jesus on the cross, and they had watched him not that long ago forgive the people that killed him and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And so they had this ultimate example in Jesus, the way he modeled that repaying evil for good. And when the jailer saw it, he's utterly moved to respond. And notice, you know, they don't even have to say anything. He just comes in, he gets on his knees, and he says, you have something that I don't have, but I want it. I see something in you. And he's suddenly made aware that, you know, he could never handle, number one, the suffering and the abuse and still have, uh, uh, you know, joy. And he also knew that he could never repay evil with something good. It wasn't in him, not in the way that he just saw them do it. And those two things are remarkable to that, to him. And so, uh, you know, when, when he sees that, he, he's, his heart is utterly changed. And so now the gospel has set him free and he starts to change, right? And this is what attracted him to the gospel. And yet, you know, when he receives the gospel and believes the gospel, then he starts to have compassion on them and he starts to wash their wounds and he starts to do things that he, he didn't give, you know, he didn't care about. I almost cussed. He didn't give a, a damn about. Can you say that in church? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Debbie. I just... Let me take some water. <laughs> you guys can edit that out, right? Um, I, I would say that in my church, but... So he, he is... This jailer is like, he's changed. And it's a miracle. He, it's a miracle. Now he's feeling compassion because he sees the difference that Jesus makes in a Christian's life. So let's read on. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul says to the officers, hey, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul is so cheeky sounding here. I, I think he's very sassy is what I would call him. Um, and, and I, I just, this, this, I get, this gets me really curious. I've thought about, prayed about this a lot because it just makes me really curious. Why didn't Paul like bring this up earlier? <laughs> um, like when they were being beaten or why would he go through that severe that severe beating and why would he be put in jail? I mean, cause it was against Roman law to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. Uh, and so it seems that Paul could have avoided like the whole scenario, the whole beating, the whole jail scene. Uh, it, it, it seems like if he would have played this card, if he would have brought up his Roman citizenship earlier, but he didn't. And I'm very curious about that. And the only thing that I can think of is that, is it possible that he was willing to go through that persecution and endure that hardship if it meant that he would get to see the jailer and his whole family come into the kingdom, come into relationship with the Father. I just, that's the only thing I can think of. It's like, I think the Holy Spirit just helped him discern something. And so he, instead of bringing it up earlier, he waits. He waits and he goes through the hardship until God gets what God wants until God restores this jailer and his whole family to himself before trying to get 
you know, his difficult situation, get out of it. It's like he had a get out of jail free card and he didn't use it because he was actively aware, asking God, what are you up to? What, you know, how do I cooperate? Even if it means that I'm going to have to give up my legal rights as a Roman citizen. And to me, it's just fascinating that he had, that it's, it's sort of like, you know, I've been trying to, this spiritual discipline lately of submission. Like, how do I, when I'm not getting what I want, and I could somehow, you know, use my authority or whatever position to get it, how do I submit to and walk through something when I feel that resistance? Like, I, I don't want to do this. Oh, here's an invitation from Jesus for Brenda to practice submission. And uh, it's, it's really challenging because we try to get out of the hardship, right? Comfort. That's my main goal in life most of the time. You guys are so spiritual because you're not with me on this one. Oh, well. All right. So let's read on. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and they escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. Listen, church, don't quit bringing the good news. Don't quit telling the story of what God has done in your life, who he is and what he has done for you. I know that it's messy, right? I mean, I've been going through so much transformation the last couple years, and most of the time, you know, it's just messy. But when I talk to people about the fact that God's in the middle of my messy story and that he loves me anyway, even with all my limits, even with, you know, the habitual sin. When I tell people that story, they listen and go, I need that kind of a God in my life. I need that kind of a hope in my life. Your story doesn't have to be cleaned up. It doesn't have to sound perfect. Paul was angry when he cast out the demon. He was fed up. You know, he, he didn't do everything eloquently. His, he, was, he was flawed. And so I think it's good for us to realize, like, sometimes I think we don't share the gospel. We don't tell our story of what God's done for us because uh, it's a little bit messy. You know, maybe I should get a little bit, we, we say, you know, get my ducks in a row. Maybe I should, like, clean things up a little bit. It hasn't been that long since my last sin, right? I think it's, it, that's putting the focus on us. Instead of on the part about God and that he's in the middle of that and he still loves me deeply and he still restores me and he's making me whole. Someday I'm going to be going in that place of shalom and I'm going to become who he created me to be. We get a really good picture from this passage and I would call it the principle of the clash of two opposing kingdoms. And the, the principle is that God moves in power and then the enemy attacks. And then God moves in power and the enemy attacks. And then God moves in power and the enemy panics because he knows it's almost over. So then he scrambles and it gets a little bit worse before it gets better. Look at this overview of what we just read. God speaks and Paul obeys. God tells Paul and Silas to go, not to go north or south or east because there's something else that 
I want for you to do. And so they go to Philippi, and clearly, God's led them there, and they start to have some success. God moves very powerfully, and Lydia becomes a Christian. And then there's attack from the enemy, and we have this harassing slave girl. She's demonized. She becomes a huge distraction and annoys Paul. And then God moves powerfully, and they take authority over those demons, and she gets set free. And then there's this attack from the enemy, and they're beaten, and they're imprisoned. And then God moves powerfully, and the earthquake unlocks the prison doors, and the chains fall off. And then there's this attack from the enemy because the jailer threatens to kill himself and fall on his sword. He's clearly, it's out of fear. And then God moves powerfully, and the jailer and his whole family are saved. And in the end, God's people prevail with the Holy Spirit's power and presence. And they all go worship together at Lydia's house. Listen. The, the, the devil cannot undo what God has done because it's sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's eternal in God's kingdom. But what he does, his strategy is he immediately attacks us after any move of God to try to distract us. He's just trying to get us to forget what God just did, right? And it's the least that he can do in that moment. It's pretty much all that he can do is to try to distract us from what God just did so that we don't talk about what God just did. Like God does this amazing thing and, you know, we, 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 we know we experience God and then, you know, you head out to work in the morning and your car is towed or you have a ticket or a flat tire. And then for the whole day, you're telling your story and commiserating and finding anyone you can to say, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you. That's just a bummer, right? And you forget to tell them about what God did. It happens. It happens all the time. It's like God moves and the enemy tries to distract. And he just wants you to not talk about what God did. He wants you to quit telling the story of what God did. And so we have to learn to see those distractions for what they are. And just sort of bat them away, you know, like annoying, distraction, distraction, distraction. And somehow teach ourselves to default to the God story instead of the distraction when we're talking to people about who God is and what he does. Because there's always going to be this, this, you know, clash of the kingdoms. One day, the kingdom and his kingdom will be fully realized when Christ comes Again, but right now there is this clash of the kingdoms. We live in between the time of Christ's first coming and his second coming. And it means that we're kind of caught in the middle of this spiritual war, this this conflict. And so there's always going to be that counterattack and opposition from the enemy. And, you know, it kind of answers that age-old question, why is this happening to me? Isn't that what you say? Like when bad, this is what, when bad things happen to me, like, why is this happening to me? I'm just trying to serve you, God. Oh, counterattack. Oh, distraction. Bat it away. And remember what God has done for you and talk about that. Just going to wrap up with three quick thoughts. I don't think we should ever stop telling our good news story because I think it's the good news is for every person. Every person. And also because... It really does bring people together. It unifies us. You're sitting next to people that you might not normally like. 
would you guys like have met? You guys are all looking at each other and going, hmm. <laughs> Don't worry, they're thinking the same thing about you, so. <laughs> but it's true. We're here because we want to worship together. It's the gospel that brought us together in this room tonight. It's the, the fact that we have Jesus Christ, the center of our relationship, that unifies and brings us together racially, socially, psychologically. Uh, you know, these three stories, these people are worlds apart, and yet they're all three changed by the same gospel, and then they're welcomed into the same church, and they end up worshiping together in Lydia's house. It's crazy how the gospel brings people together that would otherwise never be brought together. And thirdly, because God is going to work through us even though we are kind of flawed and messed up. And I don't know, but it just brings me comfort. <laughs> it just brings me comfort to know that, you know, Paul was flawed and God used him. Peter was flawed and God used him. So many people in the story, it, it, you know, God is like, it's okay. I can, I can deal with it. I can use you anyway. And even in so much of my transformation now, I, 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 I have a little bit of regret. And I think, gosh, I wish I would have, you know, lived the last 20 years without this anxiety that I'm getting free from or, um, you know, without having to overfunction or, you know, all the things I do, my habitual sin. Uh, and I, I kind of regret sometimes that, like, I could have, like, been doing this for 20 years and God's like, it's okay because here's where we're going. We're going to Shalom. That's where your feet are pointed. Shalom is the wholeness. It's the new heaven, the new earth. It's who we're created to be. It's our true self. It's the eye, the prize that God is doing. That's, that's, we have to put our eyes on that and say, this is where I'm going. And every time I invite the kingdom to come right here, right now, he comes. And he helps me get to Shalom. I get to realize a little bit of God's kingdom now. And, and, I, I, I've, and I've failed so many times. And God say, get up, dust me off, you know, let's go again. And let's keep telling the story of who God is and what he's done for us. Why don't you guys stand up with me if you like?